So we're in the middle of this mini-series that we've called Heavyweight Faith, uh, diving back in to uh, the book of Matthew, kind of our ongoing study the last few years. And uh, we learned last week that uh, Mike explained that Matthew at this point has kind of shifted gears. He spent about 10 chapters focusing on the person of Jesus, on who he is, on what he said, what he taught, uh, and what he did, and now has kind of drawn a line in the sand and moved to a bit of a different conversation, and that is how people should respond to who that Jesus is. And uh, we launched into this faith, uh, heavyweight faith series last week by looking at uh, the story of a guy named John the Baptist, who... uh, had been imprisoned at the time, and you got the sense that his faith in Jesus wasn't quite playing out the way that he thought, and he was starting to maybe have some doubts on whether Jesus was in fact the promised Messiah. So he sent some people to Jesus to kind of inquire about that, and we were learning about what we called last week a bandwagon faith, and evaluating whether whether our faith depends on things working out the way that we would want them or whether we're prepared to follow Jesus according to his terms and his timing and according to his sovereign divine plan for our lives. And I say all that because as we dive into the passage today, if you brought a Bible along uh, or a a Bible, uh, you have a Bible app on your portable device, you can turn to Matthew chapter 11 and read along with us. Uh, Jesus begins by continuing to talk a little bit about John the Baptist. So we're picking up the, the passage in Matthew 11 and verse seven, where it says this. It says, as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. He goes on to uh, kind of affirm the ministry of John the Baptist. Mike talked about this last week, that this is the place uh, where he describes John as greater than any other person born of a woman. Imagine Jesus saying that about you. He's trying to declare that John the Baptist was in fact a top shelf prophet. The question though, uh, I I hope that we can realize is that, that, that Jesus isn't primarily focused here on John the Baptist. He's referring to John the Baptist, but he's addressing the crowd. And in this initial conversation, he asked them three different times the same question. What did they go out to see when they went out to listen to John's preaching? What did they expect? Why did they go out to to see John the Baptist? And it kind of makes you wonder why Jesus cares so much about why they would have gone to follow and to listen to John the Baptist's teaching. Well, Jesus kind of answers that a little later on, and we realize that at this point, the faith condition of the crowd around Jesus is actually of greater concern to him than the faith condition of John the Baptist. In verse 16 of Matthew chapter 11, he gets to his point. He says, to what can I compare this generation? To what can I compare this generation? You can almost kind of hear the frustration in his voice. It's almost as if Jesus has become a a grandparent and is talking to his grandkids about how, you know, when he was their age, he used to walk to school with no shoes, uphill both ways. And, you know, he's kind of referring to them as like you, you know, kids these days. You can kind of hear that in his voice because 
That's kind of the tone and the nature of what he's actually saying. The phrase, this generation, actually had kind of a, a, a sweeping, almost, almost frustrated tone to it. it. It would be like saying in our day and age, you people. You know, you people. It's as if Jesus is kind of throwing up his hands in frustration and despair. You know, unsure of what he can do to elicit a reaction. And it makes you wonder, what is it that this crowd has done that's made Jesus feel this way about them? That's made him say, you know, to what can I compare this generation? Well, Jesus goes on to explain this. We, we don't know outside of the information that Jesus gives us that Matthew records and so in verse 16, uh, Jesus continues this way. He says, you know, to what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the pipe for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. And at this point, we need to appreciate that Jesus uses a metaphor to describe what it is that's frustrating him about the crowd around him. He uses the metaphor of kids in a marketplace. And I know in our day and age, it might be hard to understand. We, we don't usually bring our kids to work, except maybe that one day of year when we kind of celebrate bring your kids to work day. But in market culture, that's kind of how things worked. In fact, it continues to work in market cultures all around the world today. When Becky and I go to the market in Mexico, you, you see this where, you know, the, the adults set up the stall at the, at the marketplace and the kids come along and they kind of entertain each other by playing with one another in the marketplace. But what Jesus is saying here about the crowd using the metaphor of these kids is that this crowd, as these kids, they weren't interested in playing. No game could actually motivate them to play. Happy games didn't excite them. Sad games didn't engage them. They were kind of bystanders and weren't interested in any of the games that the kids wanted to play at the marketplace. Well, so it makes you kind of wonder then, what are, what are these games in real life that these you know, metaphorical kids in the crowd surrounding Jesus what games were they unwilling to play? And it's at this point where Jesus explains this, <clears throat> also explaining for us why it was at the beginning of this passage that he felt it was so important to affirm the ministry of John the Baptist. Because in verse 18 of Matthew chapter 11, he says this. He says, you know, to whom, to what can I compare this generation? Because you're like kids who won't play at the marketplace. For, verse 18, for John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, the people say, he has a demon. And the son of man came eating and drinking. And they say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. See, the game, so to speak, that these kids were unwilling to play was the game in real life of actually responding to the teaching of both John the Baptist and Jesus himself. And these two kinds of games, the happy games and the sad games, are actually metaphors for the kind or the style of teaching or the aspects of the message of God that John and Jesus provided. See, John was a little more straight-laced, had a little more of a kind of a firm, sort of a harsh message of warning. And Jesus took a softer approach. He was a little more relational, you know, a little more inviting. But what he's frustrated by is that this crowd and kind of this generation, this society around him, wasn't really responding to either of those messages. They weren't willing to play in the happy games or the, or the sad games. And I think what's worse, what, what I feel like has Jesus kind of at this boiling point, 
is that not only did they not respond to the teaching, they, they actually did respond in, in some way. They responded through criticism of both John and Jesus. And again, comparing their, their styles or their approaches. You know, John was a very straight-laced person, had a very serious message. And in the passion and zeal of John's message, the crowd around, rather than engaging, kind of wrote him off as, as being possessed by a demon. Where Jesus would get up close and personal, he would enjoy relationship. He'd even enjoy spending time with people over a nice glass of red. But people instead referred to him, contrary to John, as a lush, as kind of a, a party animal of, of sorts. And Jesus felt like, you know, they just couldn't win. No matter what aspect of the heart of God they provided, no matter what, no matter what approach, you know, they couldn't get these people to engage. They couldn't get them to play the game of faith. Instead, these people remained passive and critical. Now, in our day and age, call a time out here for a minute, we, we've got a name for this attitude of heart, don't we? This one part passive, one part critical approach to life. We call this armchair quarterbacking. We call this armchair quarterbacking. It's you know, literally the posture of a person who, you know, instead of being on the playing field, actually enacting plays on the playing field, chooses to sit on the sidelines, or even worse, to sit in the comfort of their you know, living room, looking at the television, in the comfort of their armchair and instead of being on the playing field, they critique those who are making decisions and enacting plays on the playing field. That's what it means to be an armchair quarterback. And Jesus is kind of referring to that hard attitude in this armchair faith of the crowds around him. But before we get too armchair quarterbacky critical about these people we're reading about in Matthew chapter 11, let's appreciate the propensity that we all have in our day and age to live that out as well laughing this week uh, even though it was March break this past week um, one of my boys had a couple hockey practices they had one in the very early morning and then the next day they had one in kind of the middle of the afternoon and at the very first practice one of the hockey dads approached me and wondered why you know we booked such an early practice given that it was March break you know didn't we realize it was March break and implying that maybe the kids could sleep in and I helped them understand that you know, outside of school teachers, you know, most of the parents of these kids still had to work and we wanted to respect the fact they had to work. And so we had this early morning practice. And as they thought about it immediately, they said, well, why do we work? Why do we book that afternoon practice the next day then? Don't we realize that people work? And I kind of looked at them for a minute, hopefully lovingly. I was counting to five to make sure I didn't regret what I was going to say next. And they kind of beat me to the punch and they said, you know... They said, I'm going to criticize you no matter what you do. You know that, right? And we kind of had a laugh, sort of. And, uh, and I just appreciated again that we do that. We're, we're that hockey dad. We're that armchair quarterback. Whether it's, you know, parenting or politics or anything in between. We, we take one part passive and one part critical and mix it into armchair quarterbacking about all kinds of things, don't we? And, you know, the more I thought about it, the more I realized that it's not actually an attitude of passivity or an attitude of, of criticism that's at the root of armchair quarterbacking. I think that at the very core of the hard attitude of an armchair quarterback is actually the attitude of arrogance, isn't it? An arrogance that presumes, even though we're not on the playing field, that we actually know best, that we could actually play 
better and more effectively than the people who are actually in the arena or on the playing field playing. It's that posture of arrogance that, you know, kind of undergirds that passivity and that critical spirit of an armchair quarterback. And I say that because I feel like it's really that hard attitude of arrogance that Jesus is trying to speak into in this generation, in this crowd of people around him in Matthew chapter 11. He closes off this way in verse 20. It says, then Jesus began to denounce the towns in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin, and woe to you, Bethsaida. You can continue to to read the rest of that rant for yourself. What Jesus actually does is he takes some notoriously bad kind of by reputation, some bad towns from the Old Testament, towns that had flagrantly disobeyed God. And he compares them or contrasts them to towns of his day and age where he lived and taught and and performed certain activities, certain miraculous works of God. And he he starts off with some, some reputed bad towns in Tyre and Sidon and he compares them to this Chorazin and Bethsaida where he had performed some miraculous activity. And then for purposes of kind of emphasis, he restates the contrast in a more extreme way by taking the most extremely kind of stereotypically bad town in Sodom and Gomorrah and compares that with his hometown, his his home base of ministry in Capernaum, where he did the most of his ministry work. And he says that these notoriously bad towns are actually going to be better off on the other side of eternity than these towns because of what he says was their refusal to repent. Their refusal to repent. And to repent, just for review, is simply to turn about. That's what the word repent means. To make a 180 degree shift from where you're at to the life that God intends. And the process of making that 180 degree shift starts with you know, kind of appreciating that you've messed up, appreciating that you're not where God wants you to be, that you've deviated or drifted from his design and, and owning that for yourself, you know, feeling regret or sorrow or embarrassment and feeling a hunger for, for more, a hunger to live differently that turns you to God and then, you know, embarks in experiencing the forgiveness and the, the resources as you exercise the faith that taps into that forgiveness and those resources to become that different person and follow God's design instead of deviating from it. That's the, that's the process of repentance. It can happen almost in an instant or it can happen over time, but it starts over here with, with humility, doesn't it? It starts with an admission and an acknowledgement that you've made a mistake or messed up or you're not where you or, or God wants you to be. And I feel like it's that arrogance to armchair quarterback that fundamentally stifles the humility that precipitates repentance, which is why Jesus, you know, kind of speaks so harshly towards them. He, he says there, you know, woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida. That woe is not pronounced woe or woe. <laughs> it's woe, W-O-E, as I studied it this week, found it interesting that that term, you know, is, is really one part warning and one part pity. That's what one scholar described woe as one part warning and one part pity, which strikes me that even in his most frustrating moments, Jesus isn't pouring judgment or condemnation 
on these people that he's so frustrated by that have refused to respond to John's and his teaching, refused to turn and repent. He feels woe towards them, warning and pity because of what they're missing out on. Now let's stop and reflect for a moment on what Matthew's trying to do here. Remember that in this passage, Matthew has kind of shifted gears from presenting the person of Jesus, who Jesus is, what Jesus taught and what Jesus did to try to now focus his readers on a response. And he starts by recounting the story of Jesus in the crowd and a group of people who are adopting kind of an armchair approach to their faith in hopes that he would warn them in the same way that Jesus warned his original hearers of what they're missing out on by approaching life with God with the arrogance that refuses to respond to the teaching that you hear about Jesus. Matthew's goal is to rid people of an armchair quarterback type of faith that looks at other people, sits on the sideline, criticizes them out of arrogance and fundamentally eclipses the possibility to embark on all that God has for us. And so I'm wondering for us today, how many of us would be able to pinpoint areas in our lives where we kind of armchair our faith more than actively engage? Can you pinpoint an area in your life where, where you've done that lately? You know, maybe even in an environment like this, has there ever been a time where, you know, you've stood in a worship time and you've looked at the person beside you and they've kind of had their hands in their pockets and thought, man, they're, they're not very engaged and looked at the person two rows from the front whose arms are flailing excitedly and thought, well, they're, they're a little too engaged with, without ever having evaluated your own heart about whether you're in fact engaged? You ever saw the person who's not really generous and thought, man, they're cheapo and then looked at the person who's really generous and thought, well, they're not very responsible with their finances instead of actually focusing more on yourself and your own heart of generosity? You know, how about this one? You ever, you know, got into your car driving back from life group, frustrated by the person who didn't share very much or frustrated by the person who shared too much as opposed to considering the kind of contribution you made in your sharing as part of your group, the authenticity, the vulnerability, the encouragement that you provided? Did you evaluate other people or did you evaluate yourself? You know, do you look at people who are advocates for compassion and justice and look at them as overzealous or, you know, overgullible instead of evaluating your own heart of love for the poor and the broken and the marginalized? You know, if we're honest with ourselves, are we able to pinpoint and find areas where we take more of an armchair approach to our faith rather than fully engaging in the adventure that God has for us? And at the same time, are we actually clear on, do we, do we realize what we miss out on when we do? I was talking about this a little bit back at our, our most recent Vision Night uh, event uh, back in February and uh, threw some stats at us as a church and you know, was, was referring to the, the statistic that of our average Sunday morning attendance, our average Sunday morning adult attendance, over 80% of that average Sunday attendance is engaged as a church uh, in our life group ministry. Pretty good statistic, pretty good engagement level. But to this point, you know, actually the end of 2014, um, 
Less than 40% are actively engaged in the anchor causes of our locations. Less than 40% are engaged in our locations' missions to serve the poor and the marginalized in the part of the world where God's placed us, to actively be the difference makers in the part of the world where we find ourselves. And you know, I shared that because we obviously want those numbers to go up. But I, when I shared that, as I share it today, um, I share that not because we've got some kind of quota to fill. I've been pretty clear the last number of times that when we, when we talk about engaging in the, the life of our church, engaging in the programs that we offer designed to stimulate and to drive what we call a lifestyle of full devotion to Christ, we invite and encourage people to get with the program, not because we want something from you, but because we want something for you and we don't want you to miss out on all that God would have for you. Now, to be clear, there are many people across all of our locations who do engage. And over the last number of years, I've seen wonderful examples and beautiful pictures of sincere hearted people opening themselves up to the forgiving and transforming work of Christ and then involving themselves in sharing that with others in inside out, you know, radically transformative kinds of ways. And it really is a pleasure to be around, you know, people of sincere humility that want God's best for them and others that are eager for God's kingdom to come and his will to be done in their lives and in our church and in this part of Niagara as it is in heaven. And it's just really inspiring to see. And if that's you today, I hope that today isn't a downer. It's not intended to be. And I hope that you're not discouraged, but rather encouraged that you know, there are many examples of people who are on the field, in the arena, making highlight real level plays of faith because they're taking God up on their offer. They're responding to the messages about Jesus. For today, though, I just want us to appreciate how susceptible we all can be to this condition of armchair quarterbacking in our faith that even an activistic difference making, you know, out there in the community type of church like ours, um, we're not immune to that in, in our circles. And we got to know that. And I've said to you many times or said in, in environments like this many times that one of the most defining moments for me uh, in my life of faith, one of the things that prompted me into into this kind of calling or this, this, this job of, of leading in a church um, was a conversation that I had way back when with my dad. And I've shared this a number of times. I won't go into detail, but um, my dad wasn't really into faith at the time. The conversation was about why that was. And he shared what had happened at work that day while he was kind of mediating a uh, strike of the school teachers with whom he Worked, And he talked about these parents at that school, Christian parents, who every September insisted of people like him that their children be taught by Christian teachers so they had good Christian influences. He's talking about how on this day where he was mediating this teacher strike, these Christian parents would drive by and throw tomatoes at the striking teachers. And when he told me that, and you know, we shared just in the disappointment of the church, painting that kind of picture of who God is. You know, that was influential for me. I, I, I kind of got in ministry in hopes that, that together with others, we could change the picture and the brand of what the church was known for in a sense that we could eradicate that from, at least from, from our church. 
Well, fast forward about 15 years, there was uh, another teacher strike a few years ago. And uh, any comments about teachers or their propensity to go on strike, you can save for your lunch tables and, and uh, kitchen tables at home. We'll leave that armchair quarterbacking for later. But uh, at one particular school here in Niagara, there was a handful of teachers who were part of the group who were on strike uh, that were from our church. And they were, they were sharing with me later that they were actually talking that day at this particular teacher strike about that story that I tell often about my dad. And they were just amazed that that could actually happen, that you know, people could come by and throw tomatoes at the striking teachers because up to that point, uh, they'd experienced a pretty, a pretty uneventful day. And then all of a sudden, a car pulled up onto the school parking lot and drove right up to the picket line where the striking teachers were. And the car rolled down the window and then looked at the striking teachers and waved at them the one-finger salute. And as bizarre as that was to these teachers who were you know, watching this, they kind of flipped in the bird and rolled their window up and just drove away, um, the weirdest part was that the person in the car was also from our church. And when one of those teachers shared that with me, they were kind of laughing about it. But you have no idea how much that devastated me to hear that. You know, I probably, in 18 years of church work, I probably have never felt more of the futility of what Jesus must have felt in Matthew chapter 11. Feeling like for like 15 years, I'd given the best of myself to try to eradicate that very type of attitude and posture, that, that very reputation of Christians in the church from, from at least our community. Only to find out 15 years later, having tried to get into ministry because of Christians who threw tomatoes at striking teachers only to learn that in a church like ours, there are Christians who give the finger to striking teachers. <laughs> I thought, wow, like it's possible to be around here for that long and be that unchanged. Wow. But you know what's even more wow about that, even as I share that with you this morning, that, that in sharing that, I'm kind of armchair quarterbacking myself, aren't I? because I'm drawing attention to someone else and what they're doing or not doing. And I'm talking about what my life's been like the last 15 or, or 18 years, not looking at the degree to which the fruit of God's spirit has been made more real in my life, looking at whether I'm actually more joyful than I was 15 or 18 years ago, whether I exude more patience than, than 15 or 18 years ago. And I, I I just hope that we can appreciate today how easy it is for every one of us to fall into that trap. To, to live more as an armchair quarterback of faith than to actually engage in faith ourselves. And to appreciate that a church like ours is far from immune of that accusation of heart attitude. And today what God's hoping for is that we would take a long hard look, not at other people's hearts but at our own hearts and evaluate the degree to which that's real in us. You know, God loves us so much that he sent his son to live and teach and model what an ideal life could look like. And then he gave up his life to death on a cross 
to pay the penalty for your sin and mine to make forgiveness possible and then rose again to make his spiritual life and resources available so that in receiving forgiveness, we could receive those resources in order to become that kind of person, to live that kind of life that he taught and modeled when he walked the earth. And all of that is kind of umbrellaed in this invitation of Jesus that he offers to fallen broken people like you and me to follow him, to become followers of him. But he wants us to appreciate today that following him doesn't mean following him around. It means following him, learning of him to become like him. Following him is not a passive thing. It's an active thing. And following him is not a one-time thing. It's an ongoing thing where as we learn more and more the vision and heart and character of Christ, we would turn from our sin, from ourselves and turn to him in repentance and in faith. And through his forgiveness and resources, he would help us become the person he'd always dreamed that we would be. And we hope that we can appreciate today that the one thing that fundamentally gets in the way of that is an arrogance that eclipses that process of repentance and faith from happening. An arrogance that would prefer to sit on the sidelines and just critique others passively instead of actually engage humbly and sincerely in being changed by God and being used by God to change others. And so this morning, we're gonna close by engaging in a bit of a reflection exercise where we can evaluate for a few moments our own hearts on this kind of stuff. And in just a moment, um, our host location pastors are gonna walk us through a bit of a response exercise. You'll notice if you've been around here lately that we've been trying to, to spend more minutes at the end of services devoted to this kind of thing. More minutes very deliberately to try to launch us or prompt us into being doers of God's word, not just hearers only, not just followers around of Jesus, but actively following Jesus. And we're gonna do that again in a few moments to evaluate the degree to which we're actually armchair quarterbacking in our own faith. This isn't intended to be a discouragement. It's not, not intended to make you feel worse about yourself. I know that lots of people are plenty good at that on their own. What it's meant to do is to pinpoint some areas where we might be missing out on all that God has for us and to launch us into new levels of repentance and faith with Jesus so that we can approach him humbly, so that we can approach him actively, so that we can approach him in an ongoing way, trusting not only in his forgiving work, but in the resources he provides to be that different person he'd always dreamed he, that we would be so that we don't miss out on the very best God has for us. So let's take a moment now to prepare our hearts and consider the degree to which that describes you and me and what it is that we're gonna actively do about that in our lives today. Let's pray. God, as we reflect on what you have for us today, I pray that we would be honest with ourselves. I pray that by your spirit, you would pinpoint areas in each of our lives where we're still sitting on the sidelines. Point out areas where we need to dive in to a greater degree, jump into the arena, jump onto the playing field and engage in the process of repentance and faith with you. And God, by your spirit alone, please give us the humility and the honesty to acknowledge that right now. Protect us from the arrogance 
that eclipses us from allowing you to work in amazing ways and protect us, God, from missing out on the best that you have for us personally and as a church and as a surrounding community. Thanks that you love us right where you're at, but thanks uh, right where we're at. Thanks that you love us too much to leave us there. And even in these next moments, we look forward to watching you work. We want to give you the credit as more of us, more of the time, actively engage on the playing field of faith, the extraordinary things that you're going to do in and through our lives together. We love you and we thank you for all these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.